And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And that's a conversation that you can get in on a couple of ways. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, maybe to ask a question, or perhaps you're in the travel industry, you can email me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. But even if you don't come on the show, we hope you'll follow us online. You can either do that through social media, uh, look for the word Fromers, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S, on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, Twitter, we're in all those places and we have really fun feeds. Or come and visit our website where there's a slew of travel information. That website is fromers.com. Now, Pauline, let's start today's program with some possibly good news for budget-minded travelers. It is news that gives us hope that it may be possible to fly at low cost to Europe in the coming months, and especially in the summer when transatlantic airfares are at their highest level. And that good news relates to the possible revival of a budget-priced airline that flies to Europe via Iceland. I know what you're talking about. Let me point out that until recently, the travel news out of Iceland has all been gloom and doom. The (laughs) ending of service by a budget-priced airline named Wow Airlines, that cessation of, uh, of, of service by that airline has had a devastating impact on tourism to Iceland. And all sorts of entrepreneurs in Iceland had to go out of business in the worst possible fashion because of the cessation of business by WOW Airlines. Tourism to Iceland simply began drying up as a result of the problems at WOW Airlines. But now that picture has possibly changed. In a recent press conference, several wealthy entrepreneurs have announced that they will be reviving WOW Airlines in approximately a month from now when they will be acquiring their first two airplanes and then they will move quickly from there to four airplanes and then to ten of them approximating the earlier service by WOW Airlines. The first flights will apparently begin from Washington, D.C. to Reykjavik, Iceland, and presumably from there to various European capitals. And because WOW Airlines has always been known for its low prices, all budget-minded travelers will have cause to rejoice. (laughs) That's the only word, Pauline, rejoice. Now, it should be noted that there have been similar false hopes that have been raised in the past about WOW Airlines, and the much-beloved WOW Airlines is not yet in the air. But it soon may begin operating again, permitting Americans to reach Europe cheaply with an interim stop in Iceland as a bonus dividend starting in a couple of weeks from now. You would be well advised to access the WOR or WOW uh, Airlines website on your computer, 
when good news will possibly be headlined on that website. Let, let's all say wow, as, wow. as a result. Yeah. Wow, well, airlines, may you continue in business. Now, let's move on now to another travel development, uh, which may enable readers to enjoy a limited form of tour to none other than Cuba. Pauline, a loophole in the regulations relating to travel to Cuba may now permit us to go there. Uh, Earlier this year, you may recall, the White House announced a batch of new regulations designed to prevent Americans from traveling to Cuba. And most of us concluded quite reasonably that American tourism to that nation would be at at an end fairly quickly. Although the new regulations contained a sentence, they contained a single sentence permitting such travel, and I quote, the sentence read, you would be continued to travel to Cuba, quotes, in support of the Cuban people, low quote, low, hmm. end quote. That wording appeared in the new regulations, but most of us, myself included, most of us felt that this particular loophole was simply an oversight by right. the White House sure. that they would that would soon be clear, closed. Well, several months have now passed, and that provision permitting travel to Cuba in, uh, in quotes, support of the Cuban people, that sentence remains in the regulations, and nothing has, has happened to eliminate it. And would you believe almost every tour operator specializing in Cuba has therefore announced a wide assortment of travel tours to Cuba, quotes, in support of the Cuban people. <laughs> As I read their literature that permits such tours, they plan to operate by using lodgings and meals provided by uh, low-income individual Cubans and not by the Cuban government or by the Cuban military. That would make these support these tours rather in support oh, of the Cuban of the Cuban people. The the largest of all tour operators recently announcing tourism to Cuba is of course the company called Road Scholar, and you may recall the Road Scholar is the former Elder Hostel. And the only limitation that Road Scholar has placed on participation in its tours to Cuba is that participants must be at least 50 years of age and, or, and older. 50 years of age and older. With that single reference to the age of 50, Road Scholar has published a thick catalog of tours to Cuba, and it is apparently proceeding headlong into that destination. And if the age limitation should give you problems, then you would be well advised to go to the website of any other company specializing in tours to Cuba, of which there are several. And you will discover that they are all depending on that permission to operate tours. And again, let me state it again, quotes, in support of the Cuban people. Hmm. That is the line that the White House permitted to remain in the regulations. Why they did it, heaven knows. It was not simply an oversight, as would have been the case had they proceeded to eliminate it. But that sentence continues to appear in the regulations that you can operate tours, quotes, in support of the Cuban people. Um, Pauline, let me voice a final thought about the uh, hurricane tragedy that recently befell the population of the Bahamas. You will probably find that a number of Bahamian hotels have closed 
those on Abaco Island in particular, at least temporarily. And Grand Bahama. And Grand Bahama. They've closed at least temporarily, limiting your choices for a tropical vacation. It is thus ever more important than ever that Cuba remains open to Americans looking for an unusual vacation. Well, we'll Take discuss a- that in a little bit. But it's important to remember that uh, though... Uh, those parts of the Bahamas are closed for business and do need our help. You will really help the Bahamas if you continue to vacation there, too, because only 20 percent of the hotel stock in the Bahamas were wiped out. The the two uh, islands that have huge numbers of uh, of hotels and, and actually more than two, Nassau, and uh, Grand and uh, Paradise Island, those are still open for business, and uh, uh, you know we want to make sure that we support the entire nation because it really is a nation that depends on tourism. Uh, so uh, don't wipe all of the Bahamas off your list for your next beach vacation. Because the two islands that were at least affected by the hurricane were the islands that provide most of the sources exactly, of tourism. Exactly. Another interesting thing that is happening in the airline world is Spirit Airlines has announced that it is going to finally give its passengers a decently comfortable ride. (laughs) <laughs> on its Spirit Airlines operating, of course, mainly in the western half of the United right. States. Well, but right they, they have, they have. I've flown them from New York City, really, uh, very uncomfortably to Chicago. Yep, yep. <laughs> you uh, went on Spirit I've Airlines. I've been on Spirit Airlines. You were saving money. Come what I may. I was saving money and destroying my back and <laughs> lower lumbar. But on their newest planes, which are set to arrive in winter of 2019, 2020. They are promising different seats. They're saying that they're going to be contoured to actually fit the human body. <laughs> they, they're saying that uh, they're, all of the seats on Spirit are called pre-reclined, which means you can't recline them. But they're going to give us another inch. They're going to give us another inch of recline on these seats so that they're a little more comfortable. They're going to be differently padded, which they say will be better. And on the seats that are in the exit rows, you're going to get an extra two inches woohoo, of recline. Now, will they retrofit all of their planes? Probably not. So it's going to be hard to know when you're booking whether or not you're going to have a more comfortable ride or a terribly uncomfortable one. But at least now there'll be a, a slight chance. And Pauline, in return for that, you will be paying much less money than yes. most airlines charge. Well, you pay much less money, especially if you're not carrying too much luggage, because their extra fees really can add up on Spirit. But yes, they do have some of the lowest rates in the business. So we can only be happy about this development. I'm looking at the clock. We have to go to a break. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the travel show. You know, as all good travelers know, travel in its essence isn't just about going someplace new. It's also about changing your mindset. But I've read very few travel books that really get to the heart of the matter in that way. Until now, there's a wonderful new book out. It's called A Beginner's Guide to Japan. Observations and Provocations, and I have its author on the line. He is Pico Iyer. Pico, thank you so much for coming back to the Travel Show to, to discuss this wonderful book. I'm thrilled and honored to talk to you again, Pauline. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And the interesting thing to me about this book is it not only really gets to the heart of why Japan is such a thrillingly exotic place for us Americans to visit, but in its uh, in the way you've written it, it seems to be, in a certain way, very Japanese. You use a lot of aphorisms and small nuggets. Were you working with a, a Japanese template in the way you wrote the book? Well, that's a wonderful way of seeing it. And yes, I wanted a lot of empty space on the page, and I wanted each little sentence to be a kind of explosive, like a haiku. And just the way in, in a Japanese painting, um, there's just an outline or a sketch, and then the, the viewer fills it in. And so I wanted to just throw out some, as you say, little aphorisms that the reader can amplify and deepen and, and make her own. So yes, very much Japanese, trying to pare it down to a minimum so that the, the reader can get the maximum. Right. And you call it a beginner's guide to Japan because you still consider yourself a beginner, even though you've been visiting Japan and living there part-time since the 1980s. Why are you still a beginner when it comes to Japan? Well, just as you said in the introduction, it's such a fascinatingly other alien place. And I never can believe I've got to the bottom of it or I can anticipate what I'm going to see when I walk down the street to the grocery store. And that's the delight of it, that um, I never can take it for granted. And it's a very layered place that's always shifting. And as you say, when I call it a beginner's guide, I'm the beginner, um, addressing somebody who maybe is arriving for the first time tomorrow. And what does she do where pe in a place where people say yes when they mean no and when there are two and three counts at the baseball stadium? And everything seems reversed to the way we know it. Right. Well, one of the main things that's reversed is, is how the Japanese deal with artifice. And you, you have some beautiful observations about how they dress. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, they dress to take on a part, really. And they assume that the part has nothing to do with who they really are. So you see somebody in very shockingly provocative uh, clothes and my wife will tell me oh no she's the most clean living person and, and the person next to her has got a cardigan is looking very prim and my wife will say oh no don't be taken in by the appearance she's totally different um in her private life and again i think as you said it's the relation between surface and depth that's really fascinating in japan the surfaces are themselves exciting but you realize you can't really um interpret much from them and what's truly going on is very different from your your assumptions well, and you, you also talk about how uh, people dress to look like their micro-group, and when honeymooners go on their honeymoon, they'll often plan their outfits so that they match every day of their honeymoon. Yes, and when they take those honeymoons, they may well go to a theme park with a replica of the Eiffel Tower and, <laughs> and the Louvre. And I think there's a certain wisdom to that, because they think even a replica of the Eiffel Tower 
can arouse emotions of excitement and wonder and surprise as much as the real thing. We don't all have the time and money to fly all the way to Paris, but maybe there's something in our hometown that will move us um, just as much, even if it's a copy of right. Paris. Well, I mean, speaking of that reminds me of your chapter about love hotels. First of all, can you tell our listeners what a love hotel is and why you say those are the best places to stay in Japan? Well, a love hotel is a very convenient space. They're usually clustered in certain sections of big cities. And they're for people, often even married couples, who want three hours alone. So you never, you, there's no front desk. You press a button, you get a key, you go to your room. The room is often looks like Cinderella's castle or a spaceship or a Formula One car. <laughs> and it's appointed with all kinds of curious devices, you know, very elaborate bathroom, karaoke set, maybe the bed goes up and down, all kinds of things which you'd never find in a regular hotel. And you enjoy it for three hours, or actually you can enjoy it, enjoy it all night for nine hours and you check out at 10 in the morning. It's not very expensive, and it's full of imagination and whimsy and fun. Typical Japanese hotels look like the typical people you'll see in the subway cars. Very conformist, they have everything you want but nothing else. But the love hotels speak to the play side of things, the, the night side um, of Japan, and they're full of imagination you'll never find in a hotel in the West. Right. Yeah, no, it sounds like a heck of a lot of fun. I, I always thought they were just for sex, so I didn't. I never thought of going to one just to stay in one. Um, we are speaking with Pico Iyer, who's the author of a wonderful book. It's called A Beginner's Guide to Japan, Observations and Provocations. And you wrote about an island uh, that is totally devoted to art. In fact, it's a small archipelago. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yes, it's called Naoshima. It's in the Inland Sea. Wonderfully, it's quite hard to get to. It take maybe five hours by slow train and occasional ferry from Tokyo. And in the late 1980s, a local company bought, it, bought up this deserted fisherman's island and turned it into a cluster of museums. And, one, and as you said, the two adjoining islands also are all given over to art installations and museums. And when you go there, it's the most cutting-edge, contemporary, very cool, fashion-forward set of buildings. They're concrete. They look like the 22nd century. But deep down, they're taking you to the classic Japanese principles of simplicity, emptiness, and, and attention. Because, for example, one of them is built underground. There are only really five rooms in the whole place. There's almost nothing in each of the rooms. And yet you feel uplifted, uplifted and transformed. Mm. And for me, it speaks to my sense that Japan is like an old man in a Planet Hollywood T-shirt. He's wearing very <laughs> modern clothes, but deep down, he's his ancient, mysterious, uh, spiritual self. And that's what's so rich about it. When, when you first arrive, as you know, you see uh, McDonald's everywhere and shopping arcades, and it looks a bit like in California. But the longer you stay in Japan, the more you find that really... It's still very much about the 8th century. And the island of Nashima, I tell all my friends to go to, both for the art and for the way it gives you new eyes to see even the beautiful sea around you as a work of art. Right. What I loved about the book is you, you bring so many philosophical content uh, uh, concepts to life. For example, back to artifice, that because Japan is such an old culture, they understand that artifice is a necessary thing, maybe to get away from the intrinsic pain of life. Anyway, we've been speaking with Pico Iyer. He's written a wonderful new book. It's called A Beginner's Guide to Japan. Pick it up even if you're not going to Japan. Thank you so much, Pico. Thank you, Pauline.
Welcome back to the Travel Show. In studio with us, we have one of our favorite guests. He is Seth Kugel. He is a prolific writer, often for the New York Times. And recently, he wrote a fabulous article called A Whirlwind Round the World Food Tour of Queens. Welcome to the Travel Show. It's great to be here. And when you say Queens, that's in New York City, right? Yep. Uh, it's one of the five boroughs. It may be the least, I don't know about the least no, visited borough. No, I think Staten borough. Island Staten is probably Island the, the least, least visited borough. And rightfully so, I have to yeah. say. <laughs> uh, Queens, Bronx, and Staten Island are not visited all that much. And I think at least Queens and the Bronx, those are big mistakes people are making. Especially Queens, yeah. I think, because Queens is such a diverse place. It's amazing. I mean, I live in Queens. My neighborhood just, and it's always changing as well. I always tell people my neighborhood has seen like the growth of 15 Nepalese and Tibetan restaurants in like the last 10 years that wow. I've lived there. And that's in addition to, in my own neighborhood, the Indians, the Bangladeshis, the Peruvians, the Colombians, the Mexicans. And the Americans, of course. Right. Well. So what neighborhood of Queens this is, is that? This is Jackson Heights. It's one of the neighborhoods covered in, in the article, but it's only one of, of many uh, where you can go and have great, genuine international cuisine for a fraction of the price you eat in Manhattan. And I mean like a fraction, like oh, yeah. less than half or a quarter. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can eat stuff. You could probably have a meal for $3 in a lot of places. And it's a great way for people who may not want to fly over an ocean uh, to experience uh, these cuisines, but not only the cuisines. What I loved about the article is you you, you kind of make the point, nobody's just going to go to Queens to eat. There's a lot to see and do. So let's cover both as we're talking. And let's talk. start with Jackson Heights. Now, is the reason there are so many Nepalese and Tibetan restaurants because most of your neighbors are, are from those areas? Uh, yeah, well, I don't think most of them are. The neighborhood, of course, the funny thing about diverse neighborhoods in New York is that there are a lot of people living together, but still in their own separate world. Mm. So I, I, it's not like everyone in my building is cook, is cooking up Momo dumplings right. uh, when I walk in the door. Um, but yes, uh, people from all over the place are speaking different languages in the streets every uh, everywhere I go. And I do think it is so easy to get to from even Times Square oh, yeah. that even you take the International Express, as take, it's called, which is the number seven train. Take the seven train. It's even faster if you're coming to my neighborhood to take the E or the F train, which huh. runs express. Um, you can get once you're on the train, it takes about 15 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes, and you're right in the middle of a whole different world. It's a you could go for an afternoon. Now, yeah. I would also recommend uh, my top recommendation for doing something aside from eating in Queens and aside from maybe walking around and shopping is the Louis Armstrong House Museum. I love the Louis Armstrong class. Now, they've been renovating it, haven't they? Um, yes, uh, but the great thing about it is it's still the exact same house that yeah. he lived in until he died, and then very, very slightly modified by his wife. Uh -huh. but, but his wife was the last person to live there. So it's like entering the 1970s, basically. Uh -huh. So in, even if you're not a huge fan of Louis Armstrong, and I don't know why you wouldn't be, right. um, <laughs> just entering a house that that is like a time capsule from the 70s. I remember my first thought walking in is, that's the thermostat I grew up with. Oh. <laughs> wow. Uh, the other thing I loved about the Louis Armstrong house is it seems like everybody who works there is enamored, in in love with Armstrong. And you hear these loving stories about his life, and he was obviously 
just as delightful a person, you know, in his private life as he seemed to be as a performer. And they, they tell you kind of wacky things like the fact that he went on a USO tour uh, and he was such a pot smoker that he got the army uh, to allow him to bring marijuana, which oh, was illegal funny. at the time. That's funny. Yeah. Everyone there is. Uh, well, the museum is associated with Queens College. And uh-huh. it's a research Institute. Well, I don't know exactly what it is, but the archives, Louis Armstrong's all kinds of archives there, and people who are studying him yeah. are also working at the museum. So it's unusual in that aspect. And I agree, everyone there is totally passionate about it. Yeah. And the great thing is he... Um, he recorded so many of his own conversations. He was like, he was like me when yeah. I was like in first grade with the tape recorder. I was always <laughs> recording myself talking about things, but I'm not, wasn't as interesting as a six year old as Louis Armstrong was yeah. as an international star. And so you hear him and as you go through the all, museum. All these uh, excerpts of his sort of just daytime, regular old or dinnertime conversations. And, and in learning about his story, you also kind of learn about what it was like to be a jazz musician. I mean, I, I remember them telling me how unusual it was for a jazz musician to have a home. This was really Louis Armstrong's very first home he ever owned. And so it was a place of great pride. And it was him. in an odd neighborhood. And you'll yeah. hear the story how his wife ended up buying this house in Corona, Queens, when certainly he was already a major star. Sure. He certainly didn't need to live in Corona, Queens, uh, just which is just a, was at the time a lovely sort of residential, I think, Irish neighborhood. Yeah. We are speaking with Seth Kugel, who's the author of a terrific uh, article in The New York Times. Times, a whirlwind round the world food tour of Queens. So we go to the Louis Armstrong house and then we eat Tibetan food. And what does Tibetan food consist of for those who've never had it? I kind of sometimes think of it as a, a healthy, seemingly healthy Chinese, Indian. If, you know, it's right in between the S- South Asia and and China. Right. Um, some, I mean, it's obviously technically a part of China, Tibetan food. Right. Tibet is. Um, the thing that's the most popular are these momos, these dumplings, which are super juicy. And I mean, you know, dumpling is a dumpling, but I love the sauces that come with them. The mm. one place that I ate, they put three sauces out in these coffee cups, like these traditional New York City, like those Greek coffee cups. Oh, wow. And, the, and then you take the top <laughs> off, which is, it's like you're opening a coffee and there's some really spicy red chili sauce inside or whatever. Mm. Um, so there's, there's that. Um, there's a lot of great soups. They do, uh, they, they make their own fresh noodles and put them mm. in the soups along with a lot of, I always feel like when I have one of these Tibetan or Nepalese noodle soups, uh, I'm feeling, I feel really healthy. Well, we're going to hear more about what you can eat and do in Queens. So don't turn that dial. Once again, we're speaking with Seth Kugel, who has a terrific article in the New York Times, a whirlwind round the world food tour of Queens. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Travel Show. We've been speaking with Seth Kugel, who's a prolific author, as I said before. Right now, he has a wonderful article in The New York Times, which is called A Whirlwind Round the World Food Tour of Queens. And Seth, I got to say, you did something I'm not sure I'd, I would do. Oh, boy. You ate a bullfrog. <laughs> <laughs> Where well, was know, that and why? <laughs> I mean, you know, how is that different from eating frog's legs in a French restaurant? 
Uh, I don't tend to do that much. Well, I guess I have had frog's well, legs. I don't know, just somehow it is different. the bullfrog. It is I, different. Yeah, it's different. It, it's a, it comes as a very identifiable bullfrog chopped into pieces. You really? can definitely tell what every piece is. This was at a hot pot restaurant in Flushing, Queens, actually in uh, the New World uh, Mall. Uh, these very, very ornate place, which was just, it's incredible that it exists inside of a mall. You feel like you're in some sort of a Chinese palace. Mm. And the thing I liked, I think, the best about the experience of a hot pot, where you sort of cook your own food at the table. Right. And for those who don't know, Flushing is New York City's true Chinatown, right. I think. Yeah. Uh, it's And the, the mall has an incredible food court, as well as these restaurants. But in any case, th- this restaurant's really, really amazing. And mm. Um, you, the thing I like the most about it is we were the only, I went with a friend, we were the only non-Asian, possibly mm. the only non-Chinese people there. Uh, and, but we didn't, they, we were made to feel incredibly comfortable. Everyone else was speaking Chinese around mm. us. Wow. But it's almost like they spotted us and they sent the best English speaking waiter <laughs> over, uh, and explained everything to us. And clearly we weren't the first right. folks to be there to from outside in. the community. And, uh, the end, and you cooked the bullfrog yourself. I, I just saw bullfrog on the menu and I had to get it. Did it taste like chicken? Yeah, you know, it tastes yeah, like chicken. Basically. It tastes like chicken. So, uh, in the article, as we were saying before, you talk about the things there are to see and do in Queens, as well as the things to eat there. And you you, you rightly uh, suggest that people go to P.S. Uh, one, which right. is an offshoot of the Museum of Modern Art, and to the Isamu Noguchi House, which has his sculptures. What do you eat in those areas? What What are the top cuisine for those places? Well, we're talking about Long Island City and Astoria. Right. I think Astoria is the highlight between the two. Uh, Astoria is known for... Well, it's almost like Jackson Heights in diversity, except with different countries. So mm. you have um, Greek. It's the most famous cuisine right. there. It's been the Greeks have been there forever. Um, Are they still smashing plates anywhere, or I not didn't really? See any sm- uh, plates being smashed? No. But it, it still was very, had a very raucous time at Astoria Seafood, which is quite an mm. extraordinary and unusual restaurant, where it's actually a fish. Just a fish market, basically, huh. where you grab your own fish uh, and then you bring it to them and just say, cook it. And it's totally chaotic and it's packed all the time. And I, I when I gave them this fish, we got some calamar and some, uh, I think it was swordfish. I didn't know how they'd find me again to give me the food. But then right. just like three minutes later, the guy shows up and plops it down at our table. Wow. Um Delicious, very, you know, when, f- when fish is fresh, you don't need to do that much to it. Yeah. They just toss some lemon and some vinegar and they, they and they uh, grill it or broil it or whatever you want them to do with it. So that's an example of what you can do. I so also, you have to tell them how to cook it? Well, you just, usually they'll just do it the way they, they think, want to and uh-huh. they think is right. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's completely delicious. Uh, the Bosnians, Serbians, uh, Croatians all have restaurants in Astoria. Wow. There's a huge number of uh, Egyptian restaurants there. Uh, Brazilians, which I uh, love Brazilian food. There's a lot of Brazilian restaurants, including places which are called Kilo restaurants in Brazil, where you pay by the pound huh. for uh, whatever you want. And that way you can try like eight different dishes yeah. at the same time and pay a very... All these places are incredibly reasonably priced. We're speaking with Seth Kugel, who is the author of a terrific new article in the New York Times. Look at it. It's called A Whirlwind Round the World for Food Tour of Queens. And before we leave Astoria, Bosnian food, mm-hmm. uh, what's that like? Um, well, uh, it, it's... 
amazingly sort of a mixture of uh, all the cultures that have sort of ruled over that part of the yeah. of the world. Uh, so it can be anything from Turkish to Central European. Oh. I, we had a something very simple but very delicious, which was a, a traditional chicken soup. And as I think I said in the article, it's exactly the chicken soup your grandmother would have made if she were Bosnian. <laughs> uh, it's just a little different. Right. It, 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 it's uh, the same... Thing goes for every good chicken soup, right? It's hearty and it makes you feel good. And it, uh, but this one had okra chopped up into it. It mm, was and it yum. had a big dollop of cream in it, wow, can't uh, which you that. can mix around. And so that was really great. Um, Boriks are popular in that part of the world. They're kind of like a thin pastry filled with meat, that sort of a thing. Um, we also had a really delicious bottle of pear juice. Mm. Uh, I never. It was it was a industrialized product imported, I think, from Slovenia. Or something right. like that. So even the drinks there are unusual. Can and you get alcoholic drinks at most of these places? In this place, I think you could. It's, right. it's It sort of goes back and forth because huh. these are simple. Many of these places, of course, the Chinese uh, hot pot place, you definitely can. Um, but these sort of mom and pop stores, I think it, some of them have licenses and some of them don't. Yeah. Well, it, it really made me want to go to Queens. And I'm lucky I live in New York City. But I think it's a reason to come to New York City. So look at the article. Once again, it's called A Whirlwind Round the World food tour of Queens. Thank you so much, Seth. It's been great to be here. Welcome back to The Travel Show. Earlier in the year, we all watched with horror as the Bahamas was pummeled uh, and parts of it destroyed. But I wanted to end this hour by by reminding people that only about 20% of the complete area of that nation was destroyed. 80% of the country was destroyed pretty much untouched by Hurricane Dorian. And yet I don't think that the public is aware of that of that statistic, Pauline. No. It, it looks like the entire Bahamas have been removed from the world of tourism. And that's not true. Nassau and Paradise Island, which is where the famous Atlantis Resort is, right. uh, those two were totally untouched by Hurricane Dorian. Isn't that remarkable? And only 20, so there 3,000 hotels were taken offline because Grand Bahama was very badly hit, as was the Abaco Islands. Uh, but... Um, but Paradise Island, Nassau, and many other parts of the Bahamas, in fact, 80% of that island nation, was totally untouched. And I wanted to remind everybody that because this is a nation that really depends on tourism to stay afloat. In fact, 50% of its gross domestic product is from tourism. tourism. And to to put that into context, the Hawaiian Islands, which is, of course, another big tourist mecca, only 30% of their gross domestic product is tourism. Isn't that remarkable? You wouldn't wouldn't normally expect that. And it's so very important, Pauline, that the word be 
conveyed to the public that the Bahamas are still open for business. They are still open uh, for business. And the the areas that were badly hurt were the lesser tourist areas, it would seem. Well, Grand Bahama. A lot of people went to Grand Grand Bahama. Bahama. Hardly anyone went to the Abaco Islands. Isn't that so? Yes, exactly. So, So do consider going to the Bahamas. Not only will you be doing a good deed by doing so, it's going to be one of your least expensive uh, beach vacations in the coming months because because of this misunderstanding, a lot of people have canceled trips or aren't even thinking of booking trips there. So we are seeing prices plummeting. Uh, we are seeing lots of availability. You are going to be welcomed with open arms uh, because these are people who desperately need your business. You have a lot of people go- who were hotel workers uh, in the affected areas who are being hired by the hotels in the unaffected areas. And we've heard from Atlantis. We've heard from Bahamar. We've heard from some of the other beautiful resorts in the unaffected areas that they're giving a lot of money to the areas of the Bahamas that have been affected. And I'm sure, like us, you would like to support those efforts. We want to support the people of the Bahamas. And you can do that by going and getting a tan, (laughs) by going and, and, and supporting the Bahamas, by continuing to vacation there. All right. We have come to the end of this first hour. Let me welcome... Let me welcome all of you with a hearty bon voyage.